0: I mean, I think the cautionary moments are the fact that ERCOT, you know, got lucky or has been getting lucky for the last decade on these type of weather events that where we skirt the line and we skirt the knife's edge between grid collapse and save the day. And I think the ERCOT operators have done a great job at at basically managing with the information that they have. But, But you're right. It's a perfect storm.
1: As the storm hit Texas, power-generating plants across the state were knocked offline. Without that supply, the Electricity Reliability Council of Texas, known as ERCOT, ordered utilities to cut power to homes inside the statewide power grid. The purpose of having an electricity market is to deliver electricity to homes and businesses, right? Yes. And we know that for several days, electricity didn't go to homes and businesses, right? Quite a few of them. The lawsuit alleges gross
2: negligence by the power grid operator and the electricity provider, saying it led to the death of 11-year-old Christian Pendenda.
3: It's just hard to say in any aspect that it's a success because there was so much
1: suffering and, and damage, and we never want to see this again.
2: Welcome into the Green Insider Podcast, powered by E Renewable. I'm your host, Fred Davis, on this special edition of the Green Insider Podcast. Part 2 of our ERCOT series, What Happened and What Needs to Change Moving Forward. We welcome Mr. Evan Curran, founder of ClearTrace as well as HGP Storage. Very well up to date on what's going on, all things solar renewables as well as ERCOT and just the uh, renewable investment side as a whole. Very excited to get his thoughts on what went down at ERCOT over the last f- few weeks. And then Ken Donahue, no stranger to the program. We had him on very early on in the show. He's Senior Director of Electric Power Engineers just outside of Austin and a former ERCOT employee so great insight from both of them uh, on part two of this series but before we get going on all that let's welcome to the program Miss Donna Foy deputy director of NEMA Four, the NEMA News Minute.
4: This is Donna Foy deputy director for the North American Energy Markets Association. Thanks again for the opportunity to provide another NEMA News Minute for the Green Insiders listeners. As we mentioned on the last couple of NEMA News Minutes, we had to cancel the 2021 Spring Conference in Austin due to the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. We will be back in Austin next spring. However, in the meantime, we're going full speed ahead on planning for the 2021 Fall Conference to be hosted by Customized Energy Solutions in Philadelphia. That will be in early October. The weather should be beautiful. We'll feature a lot of great outdoor events. The pandemic will be well contained and people will be ready to get together with friends and colleagues. We'll provide more information about that conference in a couple of weeks. We're also continuing with our virtual presentation series. Our next presentation is on Emerging Threats to the Grid by Mark Sachs, Deputy Director for Research at Auburn University's McCrary Institute for Cyber and Critical Infrastructure Security. Mr. Sachs, who worked in the George W. Bush White House and was Chief Security Officer for NERC, is a fascinating speaker, and the topic is very timely given the recent solar wind cyber attack. That presentation will be on Wednesday, March 10th at 3 o'clock Eastern. We also have presentations coming up from Kevin Helmick of Amazon Web Services, who will share his insights on both sides of the C&I market, and Julian Demolin-Smith from Bank of America Securities with his thoughts on the 2021 energy market. We'll provide more information on those and others very soon. On the RFP front, the Energy Authority, on behalf of American Municipal Power, has issued an RFP to procure behind-the-meter renewable generation for two of AMP's customers in Michigan. AMP is seeking bids for full-attribute solar generation PPAs with preferred commercial operation dates between January 1, 2022 and June 1, 2024. Please see NAMA's website, NAMA.com, for additional details on this RFP and others with due dates in March. Last but not least... We recently posted member job opportunities to our website for Savion and LS Power. Please refer to NAMA's website for more details. That's it for now. We look forward to giving another update soon. Thanks, Fred.
2: Thank you very much for that, Don. And of course, if you want to know more about NEMA, go to NEMA.com. That's NAMA N-A-E-M-A dot com. So without further ado, let's welcome to the program founder of ClearTrace and HGP Storage, Mr. Evan Karan. As far as smart meters was concerned, I know you mentioned that in the TEPA broadcast last week, where might they have been uh, a bigger factor?
0: I just think that the, we, have, we invested in significant dollars in the, between 2006, maybe to 2015, 2017 in advanced metering technology to uh, help uh, transition customers to more time of use and or real time metering. And, I, and uh, the fact of the matter is, is that a significant portion of retail customers are still on standard rate plans. And uh, the smart metering, A, could have uh, created more incentive-based approaches to reduce consumption um, rather than a voluntary consumption approach where, you know, they they send out a notification saying, please reduce your electricity usage. Nobody reduces their electricity usage if they're not going to get paid for it. So, you know, the fact that these smart meters are just not connected, they're only connected for settlements, they're not connected for incentive-based demand response and, and demand management means that we basically wasted a major opportunity for smart IOT based systems to actually be turned on. We just never turned, we never turned that feature on. It's like, it's like installing a, a, you know, a a software and never using it. So basically smart meters are only used for settlements. They're not used for real time uh, demand side management and they need to. And if we, if we had a little bit more foresight into turning on those smart meter uh, integrations, there could have been some significant changes in how, the retail energy providers could have structured uh, supply side and supply side retail contracts to say, you know, if you shut off, you'll get paid. If you, you know, you can't create those programs overnight, That it takes months and months and years to create like, economic incentives to it, incorporate into like true residential demand response. And so we, we just failed. We failed to leverage those smart leaders. Just never used them.
3: Hey, Evan, this is Mike. Uh, so you're talking about the demand response programs that we have in place in the business side of things. Because of these meters, we could actually bring them resi- to the residential side of the marketplace. Uh, yeah, I mean, you, I think. Do you see?
0: Yes. Do you see that happening in any other states? California has some of it with uh, the rooftop solar and batteries. I mean, if you really want connected edge level grid, and you really think that there's going to be a fundamental change in how consumers use power prosumers, they call them, or um, then you need to turn on no smart meter. You need to t- turn on features of smart meters and then you need to build financial contracts that leverage smart meter technology. So uh, do I think it's possible? Yes. Do I think consumers want to get paid to, to reduce consumption? Yes. Do I think consumers are going to do it without an incentive? No. You know, there's external, there's extrinsic incentives and I- intrinsic incentives. The fact is, is that we have not utilized the, the broad base of resi load uh, with any any true incentive approaches other than maybe giving them a free nest thermostat, right? That's just, it's not going to work. You know, you can't just give somebody a free nest thermostat. You, you have to really engage them in their energy usage in order to actually turn on the optionality in flexible load resources.
3: Off the cuff, do you know the uh, load percentage breakdown between residential and commercial in the state of Texas?
0: Yeah it's I mean it's pretty lopsided and it's significantly more residential than commercial I think it's like 60 40 70 30 it's pretty big I mean it, in, in the summer it's bigger uh, because of the the electric usage for for AC but yeah resi load uh, is is That's is significant massive. yeah that's yeah. significant yeah And again they're not there the 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 large CNI have have earned. Be put in place significant like interval data recorders to do more demand side management because, you know, they're, they're such a large consumer concentrated consumer of electricity that they have to basically they're, they'd be remiss not to like if you're a big industrial facility or a big, you know, uh, arc welder or steel facility or whatever. You know, the, the fact is that energy is probably the lot one of the single largest line items from an expense perspective. And so those guys are already very well informed and well aware of their energy usage, but the resi customers have no clue. They, they don't know. I mean, they just don't know. And and the fact is, is that they're with a little bit more coordinated action, what they call grid orchestration. Um, there could have, you could have prevented some of the issues that we saw last week or week and a half ago. Um, and, and it's around... It's around, it's around communication. It's around incentives. It's around rebates. You know, you don't need retail energy companies to tell their consumers to to cancel their contracts on Friday. Like what Gritty did, right. You know, send out, send out a notice saying, please, please cancel your contract. We'll give you a hundred dollars. That doesn't work. Like conceptually speaking, shut off your electricity, move out of the state. We're going to charge you a thousand dollars a day. Like we're going to make it punitive. The problem is, is that the, the, Specifically speaking, the incentive mechanisms or the incentive approaches to engage downstream resi customers just don't exist, and the financial contracts are not set up for real time metering. They're set up for boring basing basic end of the month. You use X, you, you, we bill you a flat rate, and you you get you pay that right. The the turning on flexible load resources is has not been part of the discussion and conversation. Yet all these other companies that are out there that are talking about edge level grid coordination, like companies that are IPOing or or SPACing on the market, are talking about you know a battery in every home or or grid coordination, etc. You can't get there unless you actually build in the the technology and for the technology, there's smart meter Texas. You have to opt in. Like you literally have to go to a website, type in your Easy ID, sign a sign a form to opt in to allow your retail provider. To actually visualize and view your data. The issue is, it's not around the technology streaming that data to a database. It's about building the, the, the you know, these retail energy companies are not technology companies. They're marketing companies and they're energy supply companies and they're really just credit providers. Um, they're not tech companies. They don't have data lakes. They don't have GraphQL logic built in to do machine learning optimization. They, they just don't have the technical infrastructure that, and have not invested heavily enough in technology to actually be able to do anything with that data. And so, it's it's both. It's a three step process. It's turning on the data and opting in. It's building technology to actually be able to analyze, compute, machine learning, all the other features that identify the the optionality in the data, the optionality in the customer, building load profiles, etc. And the third one is then and building true financial contract and contract management to be able to take advantage of that. Right. So I can have tons of optionality in my, in my building. But if I don't, if I don't have a financial contract to extract that value, then it's worth zero, right? So it's, it's, it's a three-part process that really needs to get kicked off. And I think now might be the best time for technology companies that are in that business to actually start aggressively promoting that these features are available. Uh, they just need to be turned on.
2: How many energy companies had you seen that were working towards this? And again, now it seems like there's no more optimal time than now to jump into it.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's plenty of companies, companies like Leap, which is backed by Union Square Ventures, does this in California for um, ancillary service management. Uh, I think InnoWatt might have done a partnership with Google in, in California to basically integrate Nest thermostats and HVAC into, into a program that enables more demand-side management. There's a lot of technology companies. It's just expensive as a startup to hire these customers. It makes more sense to partner with a retail energy provider who's already serving the customer's load in order to basically kind of expand that tech. And that's one of the things that might come out of this. You might see NRG, Vistra, some of the large gen tailors start acquiring um, better downstream customer engagement tools and management tools and data tools so that they can actually turn their customers into assets versus liabilities.
2: And I know just from listening to your conversation with Nico on the SunCast podcast, did you you knew what a week, ten days before, or kind of had an idea just from the models that you were looking at that this thing could get pretty ugly pretty quick?
0: Yeah, I mean, at least ten days before February fourth, um, it looked like they were not going to have power for that for that week, um, and there was plenty of work that could have been done with um, communication to large industrials um, to shut their power off. There could have been communication to you know, utilities and co-ops. I mean, I think if you saw today, Brazos electric cooperative filed for bankruptcy today, Mm -hmm. one of the largest, um, municipally owned cooperatives in the state, you know, and, and Brazos has been doing this for a long time. They're not, they're not dummies, right? I mean, they're really smart market participants. They, They just, they got caught on the wrong side of this thing. And, you know, and at the end of the day, a little bit better planning and hedging could have changed a lot of things. So, you know, the market, the market worked, the market had plenty of capacity to hedge. There was plenty of trading activity. It wasn't like there was a lack of liquidity weeks leading to the, to the, to the issue. If you just had better risk management uh, in, you know, uh, models uh, embedded into your trading, you know, and your, your ability to hedge, you know, you made, you, you could have made money. They made a lot of money. I mean, I mean, if there's 12 billion, if there's billions in losses, there's also billions of gains somewhere. So
2: too easy just to blame ERCOT. I mean, you know, and it's, yeah. you can't just say, hey, it's renewables. Hey, it's fossil fuels. I mean, this was the perfect storm per se. Um, you know, when, when we do the obituary, when we do this thing, when we look back at this five, 10 years from now, what are we going to remember about this? What, what's going to be the cautionary tale in all this?
0: I mean, I think the cautionary moments are the fact that ERCOT, you know, got lucky or has been getting lucky for the last decade on these type of a weather events that where we skirt the line and we skirt the knife's edge between grid collapse and save the day. And I think the urban operators have done a great job at, at basically managing the, with the information that they have, but, but you're right. It's a perfect storm. We had weatherization issues on the natural gas pipeline. We had outages, um, um seasonal outages and units that were offline. We came into February with a mild, a mild view on the market in terms of the weather, right? We, we were not ready for a cold weather event. It looked pretty mild. We had a mild end of January and a mild mild look to February. Uh, we had, um, and then we had an extreme weather event. We had, um, we had some grid conditions that tripped off power plants, which made it impossible for them to come online quick enough, um, to, to basically to reduce the duration of the event. Otherwise you would have created catastrophic, uh, uh, losses from a power, you know, inside of the power plant. And basically, you know, you might've been able to run power for a day, but it would have, would have cost more money and it would have broke, you know, the power plant would have broke or blown up. Right. And, and so, you know, there, it was just a myriad of the perfect storm, Long duration event, uh, unprepared consumers, um, unprepared market participants, unhedged market participants, uh, kind of a failure in the credit of the of the system, probably an un uh, what I'd say is un, unintended consequences of having a nine thousand dollar price cap hit from Monday to Friday, which is which is basically broke the the financial infrastructure of the market um, and and really kind of making potentially making it a you know a, an event that that made, you know, kind of an untenable credit situation. And so there's some policy issues that having a 9,000 cap for that long, maybe it should have only capped for X number of hours, and then they should have mitigated the price cap down to something that would have potentially, you know, still would have been punitive, but not nearly as punitive to cause bankruptcies of major corporations or major uh, co-ops. And there was, you know, and the fact that there's been massive retirements and baseload assets over the last decade uh, in favor of wind and solar uh, the fact that there's no grid coordination from an outage perspective for seasonal outages, uh, the fact that ERCOT allows seasonal mothballing for resources that potentially would be needed in these type of events, the fact that a lot of the wind farms are not weatherized for for cold weather, uh, the fact that there's not enough communication. For demand response and demand side management. The fact that there weren't enough um, notifications given to industrials that might have multiple days that they need to shut down their operations because um, you know, they're, they're impacting their they're, they're major impacts uh, from, a, from a, a you know a systems perspective or, you t- or an infrastructure perspective, you can't just shut down a refinery in five minutes. You know, you gotta you gotta have shutdown procedures, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the fact that we were still exporting natural gas uh, through LNG terminals up until Wednesday, until the governor basically said stop. Uh, the fact that data centers were that were that consume hundreds of megawatts of power, that have emergency backup power, were utilizing grid power versus versus their own resources. I mean, all of those kind of combine into a situation that says, if it gets to ten degrees in Dallas, you got a big you got a big problem
2: you guys talked about this last week is that the front of everybody's mind right now, but as we know, okay, it was 75, 80 degrees last week. And of course, yeah, it's a little chilly right now, but it'll go back to being warm again. And so how do we make sure that this stays on the front of everybody's mind? And maybe because of the calamity and because of, as you alluded to, the phenomenal uh, financial fallout and all this, it, maybe it'll be a lot harder this time around to not do anything as opposed to what was done last time.
0: I think that the weatherization was more focused on, the, uh, on how they cut load back in 2011 because they started cutting loads of gas compressors, which reduced supply, which reduced pressure on pipes, which basically tripped off generators. I'm not entirely sure if they did that again this time, but the weatherization was focused on that versus focus and, and potentially focused on uh, power plant weatherization versus natural gas weatherization, which is the big issue, right? We lost pressure on the pipes because the wellhead froze and we couldn't get gas to the assets. Not the fact that the assets got freezing cold, but once the assets were off, they couldn't be brought back on. So there's both weatherization on the supply side, but also weatherization on the fact that you need to be able to to have maybe diesel backups to have heaters that are that that heat up certain parts of the these transmission systems. What I will say is that on the post mortem on some of these plants that tripped off, you better believe that they know every little data element on every little line that was that froze, and they're gonna they're gonna they're gonna be required to basically show what what they actually did and spend some real money on. You know, insulating pipes and insulating airlines and insulating certain certain critical components of these assets. Where again, it's the, the big difference is if it wasn't ten degrees and it was seventeen degrees, there wouldn't have been an issue. Uh, if it was twenty-seven degrees, we would have coasted through this thing and nobody w- would have known the difference. It's just these major polar pigs they call them or these big extreme weather events uh, to the cold side and to the to the heat side need to be planned for. So, you know, we're planning for 105 degrees. Well, let's stress the system at hundred. What happens if it's 111 degrees in in Houston or 111 degrees in Dallas? I mean, we're we're looking at more extremes and extreme temperatures, not normal temperatures. And so probably ask, when was the last time, you know, in Matagorda Bay, was it below freezing for more than five days? I mean, you can probably tell you in the last hundred years. No, I mean, we look at 30 year weather normals. We don't look at, we don't look at what the extreme events are so you know it's the same thing when fema comes in and says this is the 100 year floodplain or what well, we just exceeded that well now now that data is back in the system and so now we have a data point of what it looks like at zero degrees in dallas for five days i think when we when we look at stressing the system we're going to use that case as the extreme case we probably should go more extreme we should probably go minus five we should probably say what happens if we have chicago temperatures in dallas in january you know who knows why why you know typically atmospheric normals are, are relatively stable, but it, it appears that there's a lot of instability in the in, you know the upper atmosphere. I think there was a lot of stratospheric warming happening in January, which looked like it could it, it could have definitely spilled into Europe from a polar perspective, or an Arctic air mass could have spilled into Europe. And instead, it spilled into the north into North America, and it just caught everybody by surprise. And you know, again, ERCOT needed multiple years of planning to, to solve for this event because it was outside of the normal band of of, of weather impacts. And you know, again, I think. Now that it's part of the data model, you know, they're going to use that information. And and again, we'll probably be able to get to a five degree, 10 degree weather event for a couple of days if it happens again, but if it goes to minus 15, that's a different story. So I think that that's kind of the lessons learned. Yeah, I mean, again, more extreme weather events happening for one reason or another. Whether it's whether you whether you believe in climate related changes, you're starting to see more extremes and more extremes happening more often, uh, and so that's just increasing volatility. And so, weather volatility increases. You need to harden your systems, right? Uh, and you know, it, it's interesting when weather is constant; it's really easy to manage, right? It's really easy to manage a grid. It's really easy to manage a supply chain when it's the same. If it's the same and cold all the time, trust me. Things are moving around in Siberia all day long, right? Everyone knows it's going to be cold. It's the issue of when when the weather is volatile and you can't plan for logistics, supply chain management, outputs. That's when things get hard. And the grid is really hard to manage when you have a lot of variability in the weather because weather drives demand and weather drives demand variability. And you need to have a system that's flexible enough, not fragile, but flexible But the issue with grid flexibility is that you need to have redundancy and redundancy costs more money. So, you know, you've got this triangle of kind of opposing objective functions, right? You want an optimized system, it's going to be fragile. You want a a system with redundancy and resiliency, it's going to be somewhat anti-fragile, but also really inefficient, right? So you've got this kind of complexity that you're trying to solve for at all times. And then you have a really interesting dynamic from a, from a policy perspective and an an economics perspective is that the critical infrastructure system in most of North America is managed by investors. It's not managed by government. It's not managed by government agency. So you have a, you have a a significant component of critical infrastructure managed through investor interests versus managed through human interests. And so that's an issue. Like the question is, is, you know, again, fundamentally should energy systems be managed, um, as a regulated industry in general uh, versus a deregulated industry. That's, you know, again, remains to be seen uh, in terms of the, the, you know, the final output of that, or should we have more sovereign energy systems where me as a prosumer can basically have Islanded power and I can basically be my own utility and I can take, uh, you know, take my resiliency and take my energy utility into my own hands those are all questions that are going to have to be answered at some point in the future. Critical human infrastructure and the fragility of critical human infrastructure is scary when you when you get it wrong, right? And, and again, it's one of those things that it's overlooked when you get it right 99% of the time, and that 1% of the time creates major issues, right? Cascading, economic issues, loss of life, et cetera, et cetera. And so, you know, again, we're, we're, we're trying to solve for the extremes, and, you know, if you're solving for the extremes, you're going to have to build in more redundancy, more resiliency into the systems. You know, there's a, there's all these economic arguments and books written about how to manage common pool resources, how to manage, you know, uh, how to create, you know, non-tragedy of the commons where people, where some people use more and some people take advantage of the system. Uh, you know, the question is, are the costs too low? We, is American population specifically in, in Texas and other parts where energy is cheap, Are they are they too spoiled with cheap energy? Should energy be more expensive? Should water be more expensive? Those two answers, I you know, I argue they probably should be more expensive uh, because they're they're finite resources. They are critical for life, for human life. They're critical for the modern life. And as we look to electrify every industry away from potential hydrocarbons like like, like electric transportation, uh, we're going to be even more reliant on electricity and electrical generation to power our world. Right. So data supply chain you know all the elements use, use use electrons and so you know maybe we we give up a little bit of collectively give up a little bit of uh you know savings to have more redundancy more resiliency into the grid and maybe we just treat electricity as more scarce resource versus abundant resource and and, and really plan around from there again those are those are those are kind of outside of my individual wheelhouse in terms of policy directives but you know the, the, the story has to change
3: you know, Evan, you mentioned a couple of times the financial impact of this event. There were some people throughout the course of the last 10 years that put some virtual PPAs in place within the state of Texas. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but if that virtual swap that they did, the buyer, if they bought a swap that was an around the clock swap that that seller guaranteed, that seller's writing a big, big check to that buyer for the settlement of that week when it all went to $9,000. Is that not correct? Oh,
0: yeah. That's correct. Yeah. I mean, it, it, again, it's, there's, there's contract, there's different contracts, there's firm power, there's non-firm power, there's as produced, there's unit contingent contracts. And so if the seller, and, and it's a question of availability, right? So certain power, certain power contracts have 95% availability for the year. Right. So, so it's not, it's not like, you know, it, it, if I still deliver, you know, if I still deliver hundred unit, 95 units of power over the course of the year, I don't, I don't get dinged for delivering the, for not delivering that power. So it really does depend on the on the structure of the contract. But most uh, power purchase agreements or or financial contracts are firm. They're called firm LD, you know, firm with liquidated damages. And so if you don't deliver the power, you have to deliver the money as as if you delivered the power, right? The cash portion of it. So right. yeah, there's a lot there's a lot of people on the hook. Now, some people are, are saying that there was force majeure on the natural gas pipelines. So the the power companies that were required to generate power. Were um, are basically saying, well, I couldn't get I couldn't get gas, so because I can't get gas, um, I I can force measure my power, and I don't have to deliver power to my to my end consumers. That's why there's going to be a lot of lawsuits, right? This isn't over. This is far from over, right? Right now, everyone's just making sure the bills are paid and they stay solvent or stay current with their with their liabilities. But that doesn't mean that they're not going to have lawsuits where they're going to sue, you know, the natural gas suppliers or their storage provider or you know any of the the people in the supply chain that are required to. Have you know helped you know deliver deliver electrons or whatever or, or deliver natural gas? I mean, there's this is far from over. The story is far from over.
3: But you know, if that virtual PPA was done via a wind or solar mechanism that wasn't tied to that natural gas, those developers are going to be on the hook for a big check.
0: Yeah, yeah. Again, I think is the, the thing is the wind it performed well enough, uh, and the solar performed well enough that I, that I don't think the numbers are that bad. Massive, but I mean if you're a developer and you owe someone power and you didn't you didn't generate power that week, you blew up, right? You you owe them a lot of money. You owe that delivery. Like that's not that's 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 not your power anymore. You sold it. It's you don't own it. It's right. it's you you have a financial obligation to deliver either power or money to that to that buyer. And you have you don't have that much time, right? The difference is that you have to pay ERCOT quickly, whereas the PPAs are paid 21 days after the settlement. So, you know, by in basically eight, middle middle of March to the beginning of April, some of the bills are going to come due. Right now, they're not due. They will be due. Like is this EEIs on how you negotiate third party offtake agreements and over-the-counter offtake agreements? They're, they're the rules are governed by, you know, notional, like they settle the entire notional contract versus the swap. And that's done, you know, roughly 30 days after the settlement date. So um there's another, you know, 15, 20 days left before someone's gonna have to pay the bill. Yeah, I mean, any any public company, any public company that took a loss is still probably calculating how bad it is, right? And the lawyers are are salivating right now because they're like, okay, well, I get to sue somebody, someone's getting sued. So I mean, right now they're calculating the initial loss. That's why Exxon had a $300 million, you know, bid ask between how much they lost versus like the max versus the min right and i think look at NRG NRG came out with their earnings today and they're like well it wasn't as bad as we thought right so the public companies already have to put footnotes on their earnings because they're material like bistra NRG clearway next era etc some of the private companies are probably still you know still reeling and calculating losses but i think within the next 30 days there'll be some there'll be some uh, some really interesting things that come out of this
2: what what are you hearing from some of your colleagues in the renewable industry? Kind of how are they faring, State of Texas, and developers you've talked to after uh, last week?
0: I mean, I think everyone's still in kind of a bit of a karate stance right now. Um, I think that they are um, – um, I think, you know, again, renewables are still going to get financed. just a question of, you know, the ones that got stung and burned or, or and the ones that had to replace power that they were selling for $19 at $9,000 are probably going to be rethinking how much they hedge. Uh, you know, when renewables get financed, they hedge a portion of their offtake agreement. Um, they don't hedge the whole thing. They want they keep some of it open. Uh, and so I would think that they're probably going to reduce the amount of hedges that these new farms or these new assets uh, undergo uh, and probably require more equity financing versus debt financing, which is going to have to change some of the, the, financial imp- the financial leverage that some of the developers can actually achieve on these projects. And so what I think that does is it probably reduces the project um, NPVs uh, uh, on solar and wind that are in ERCOT already, uh, because you have to increase the equity check, which reduces the the levered returns, which reduces the obviously the net the the, the net asset value uh, of the of the NAV of these sites. Uh, and so I think that's probably the the real kind of outcome is reduced hedge requirements, uh, relaxed hedge requirements, more equity checks needed, lower returns for wind and solar. That's that's kind of probably what ends up happening here.
2: Thank you for that, Evan. Now let's welcome to the program Ken Donahue, Senior Director at Electric Power Engineers.
1: I started back in 97. I was number eight hired at ERCOT back when in that little blue building out in Taylor. I kind of set up the planning group, uh, but in early days we were in operations too. Like when we had that frequency event quite a few years ago, I got the phone call at 2.30 in the morning and had to go in. No big deal. Worked there for a number of years, I think 12 years total then went to work at Encore for 10 years. So I've seen a lot of stuff and seen a lot of events out there and continue to monitor what's going on. The back half of our neighborhood lost it, but the front
3: half that's tied yeah. to where that fire station was, we all kept our power.
1: There, I found there's another reason why. You know, the first level of protection is this load shed that ERCOT did. Second level of protection is called under-frequency load shed. It's automatic. There's two levels of protection, and an operator doesn't have to have to do this one. It's very quick. It's only operated one time that I'm aware, way back in when I was working at ERCOT. Uh, we had an, an event one morning that happened. But uh, those feeders with under-frequency load shed have to stay on. Otherwise, you don't have your backup level. And during this event, they didn't fire off that I'm aware of right now. That We're still looking at all the data. But that's a reason for some feeders staying on and other ones not. Now, some people I know started rolling even under-frequency load shed feeders. It was more of an individual choice of each company. The biggest thing that kind of got me on this whole thing is the miscommunication or the fact that you don't have your cell phone or internet and TV. How do you communicate? How do you find out what's going on? That was probably the most disconcerting thing I had was I was not able to, you know, get on the ERCOT website, find out what was going on, or even get on news media or anything else, because all you had was the cellular and that was sketchy at best. There's a lot of communications we can do better all the way around. And it's not just ERCOT. It's not just the PEC I think it's the water systems. I think it's the communication systems. Um, My neighbors, we had a big discussion. We were all talking about, okay, do you drip or not drip water, you know, to protect your pipes? Um, That was
3: a big discussion. That was all over the TV, yeah.
1: Yeah, so we were, you know, I think there's a lot of things we didn't do. And then here's my big one, you know, finally when we do get power and we've been rolling out, you see downtown Dallas, Houston, and Austin all lit up, the buildings and everything, I think there needs to be some work on, hey, how do we go to low power mode on some of these buildings? You know, the building managers be ready for it. Uh, They did finally turn off the lights at the Capitol. There could have been some more that way to help. I think there's going to be a lot of ideas coming forward through this. And I think we're going to have a lot of input. I, I don't think we should discount any of it.
2: We keep hearing communication, lack of planning. How did this all come about? You've been in these roles. We're talking about sea level guys, experts at what they do. How do we have problems where the, the line is, we just didn't plan well enough?
1: I think the biggest thing, we've gotten too complacent with normalcy and not looking at the extremes. And right now, I, I have a real problem. I heard of this a lot on the hearings yesterday. I was monitoring them. Well, this is once a lifetime cold snap. I, I, I disagree with that. We're having weather that is changing. It's much more severe than it has ever been. Look at Harvey. Look at this.
3: Just go like the last five years, we've had all these one in a thousand I storms.
1: I know. I, I'm like, hold it a minute. It, it's not normal anymore. We need to change what we're planning. We need to have a, a new basis point. This was not a, a low frequency event. This is a medium frequency event now. And, and I think there's a lot of people that, well, this is... You know, very unusual and stuff like that. Well, you know, we only had a day in 2011, look how long this went—almost a week. We had a good five days of it. Uh, we've got to start factoring this into our planning and start looking at these extremes. Do a lot more resiliency type of analysis, and planning is the only way to do that. That's why I'm kind of glad I'm where I'm at. You know, on this thing, I think we've got to go further. And look how much this cost the state of Texas and the people of Texas. I think it's called for. I think we've got to have a radical change in what we're doing in all places.
2: The report in 2011 from ERCOT came out and said, listen, you guys need to winterize, there needs to be more processes done so that we don't have these issues when it comes to the cold weather. None of that was heated. How do we make sure these things are enforced?
1: Well, we got to make sure I think there's going to be some standards and requirements now. I mean, you know, if you don't do it, guess what? I'm going to make it a rule. I mean, and that's where we're heading right now. now how far do we go with it? And is it going to be effective? Uh, are we going to be able to enforce it? And so on. And by the way, it's not just the power plants. It's all the way through from the source of the fuel all the way to the end customer. And I even think the end customer is part of this now, you know, especially with the increasing use of so, you know, rooftop solar panels and so on at the homes, we're getting a lot of DERs, you know, distributed energy resources down on the distribution network. One thing is also the misconception, well, I have solar panels, I have backup power. Not really. I got a guy two doors down, he has solar panels. He wasn't on. You know, they're, they're dependent upon the power system, and it's not set that way. So I think we're going to have some fundamental changes at all levels i think we should also look at the water systems i think we should also look at the communication systems it's all infrastructure there's going to be some requirements but you know how much how much are the customers willing to pay is going to be a big key i think on this thing so when we pay for the storm itself and the damage and now on top of this we have to pay for all this infrastructure it's going to be a significant bill but i think we've got to take some steps now fairly quickly to look at the key pieces and then continue going. Uh, I, I just couldn't believe the water issues. So that was very disconcerting. All these basic things in life that we need.
3: You know, you talk about the natural gas. There was an article in the Chronicle today here in Houston that Centerpoint had to spend last week $1.2 billion extra for yep. natural gas. Right, so That's a big deal. So that's all going to come down to all of us that use Centerpoint. You know, they're going to have a rate
1: hike out of it,
3: right? They have to.
1: It's gonna come, I mean, that's that's what I was seeing. How do you pay for all this? How do you pay for this billions of dollars of stuff? I mean, gas was high as a kite. I heard a lot of people were trying to figure out how to handle it. Um, it was very interesting at the hearings yesterday to hear Vista and some of the others talking about their experience and they, they were just blown away by this thing. Um, like I said, it, it, we're gonna learn a bunch. Let's. My biggest concern in, we need to plan for it. We need to go forward. Let's not be complacent anymore. Uh, I think the legislature is going to act, put requirements on the PUC, PUC is mm-hmm. going to put requirement on others. I think the Railroad Commission on the gas and oil industry, critical too. I, I think there's going to be a lot of different pieces to this puzzle. Yeah. I think there's going to be more requirements on renewables too. E- example, um, okay, wind turbines iced up, yes. Maybe we need to require the cold weather package on wind turbines. Now, for all new ones, I've talked to a couple developers, they don't buy the cold weather package because it is Texas, since Not needed very often. Very difficult to retrofit, too. You can't just go back and retrofit one, apparently. It's very difficult. Well, okay, let's make it a requirement on all future ones being put on. They have to have the cold weather package. So now that's an additional cost that will be passed on through again. But by the way, again, hats off to ERCOT. I recognized on Thursday after I started looking at the data how close we got to blacking out. How close did we get?
2: I mean, I know they've talked about, you know, this, uh, I know it was what, four minutes and 27 seconds or whatever it was. So for the folks at home that haven't, since you've been there, explain what that means, four minutes and 27 seconds away. Right.
1: Right. Right. The biggest thing is frequency is an indication of how well we've balanced the load to the generation. A perfect balance is that 60 hertz. Now, generators can trip off. If it if the frequency goes too high, or too low, and the key point is down around 59.4, hertz. That is very very low, very unusual when we're down there. We don't normally we get down around 59.9 and nine and 0.8 periodically, but down to 59.4, we were below the mark. In other words, there was more load than generation could serve. All the generators were slowing down. That's what that means. They slow down the spinning. They're straining. And then ultimately, their protection systems, when they go a certain period of time, their own relay say, okay, it's time to trip my unit and protect it. Well, the problem is they all trip. And that's when you lose the whole grid. Oh. And the units are out, the lines are out, the load is out. There is no voltage. There's no frequency at that point. ERCOT did the right thing. It's very clear. We were so close. I'm surprised we didn't get to the voltage load shed. That's the next step to go. The problem is, is when they do trip, units get damaged. They're very difficult to bring back, especially the nuke units. You know, The quickest they can bring them back is usually one to three days. So you've lost all your biggest nuclear units. And by the way, trying to rebuild the grid back is called a black start. Uh, we have never done that in ERCOT. Uh, we practice it every year. You know, The operators go through black start training. And they go through extensive training to do it, but we've never done it. Um, Thing. and i don't want to start practicing you know <laughs> the operator is very clear they did from looking at the data that's been out there now they did exceptionally well they're trained every year they have continuing education every single year they're NERC certified they're TRE training and so on they're constantly doing this kind of stuff they're constantly drilling and doing this so they did the right thing and they have the authority to act they don't have to run to the boss to take action they can do it immediately and they did in a very timely manner and they they saved us without a doubt
3: Describe to the listeners, as, as far as the ERCOT itself being separate from the rest of the United States, or a standalone ISO. Tell them what that
1: means. Well, the, the ERCOT grid is not connected AC to the rest of the network. We do have some DC connections. There's one in the north, one in the east, and one in the south that we do exchange power with, but it's DC and it's controllable. But we do not have AC connections to the rest of the grid. Now, I'm hearing people, oh, we should join the other grid. Well, there's the eastern interconnect that operates on its own and the western interconnect that operates on its own. And they are connected by DC connections also. I'm not so sure that connecting with the other grid is gonna be that great. I don't know the cost-benefit analysis. I think we can do a lot of work on our own system here to to get more resilient before we do that. Because the problem is, it's just not connecting one line up. It's gonna be a number of lines. 30 years ago, this question was looked at. It raised more questions than it answered. Uh, We were gonna have to have numerous high-voltage connections to the other grid and to do that. And then there was going to be a different, we were going to have a lot of FERC oversight at that point uh, to deal with also. So more regulations even on top of that. And that's why ERCOT's kind of stayed separate. We've also handled things very, very well over the years. You know, even with even th- with this crisis, the operators did it. They did the right thing. But what we've got to do now is look at basic things. So I'm not saying that's the, the catch-all to fix it. Uh, SVP was in emergency also. You know, they had some low shed uh, going on. There are emergencies going on all over the place, so maybe we should look at is there a way, way we can help one another, particularly if there is ever a black start? But I, I hope we don't get there. Um, again, I don't want to test that, so and
3: some of these connections would be needed. Um, uh, correct me if I'm wrong for us to be able to wheel power back and forth between the, the other ISOs. Is that correct yes. when you get yes. when you're in need, right? Right, yeah.
1: And and the the problem with an AC interconnection is it's not controllable. You're subject to the voltage and the physics of that line, and it would radically change how those flows would be. And then with these other interconnections, change our flows to be worse or better. Boy, that's a big step up right there. That that would totally change things. There'd have to be a lot of studies before we can make that work. These would have to be big, long-term studies it wouldn't be done quick. And it isn't just plugging into the other system. I wish it was that simple. It's not. Uh, You know, physics, AC systems are driven by the physics of the system, and it's a large system. Now, a small system joining a larger system, is that really good or bad? I don't know.
2: Where do renewables in Texas stand after the storm?
1: I I think we're still pretty good. I've talked to a couple of the developers and a couple of the operators. I think we're still good. I like to make it clear it was all segments of generation did not They all had problems and they all can do things to make it better. I mean, coal had issues, nuke had issues, gas, renewables. But honestly, the renewables also helped us come back sooner. Uh, on the days after the storm, they were contributing significantly to the energy coming back. So I, I think it's a fact, I think we got to look at this diversity of fuel mix. I like energy in all forms. Frankly, I don't want all my eggs in one basket, but I, I think we're back to a basic fuel issue, a basic weather issue. All these things need to be looked at through this process. And let's get, the, let's get to the facts. Let's work out good and reasonable solutions, good cost-benefit analysis on it, and try to quantify what it's going to take to do it. And let's hit the quick ones first, because I I, I still think this is not a one-off.
2: Maybe a silver lining in all this, to your point is, with the energy transition, it's going to take everything working together, everything pulling in the same direction so that we don't have situations like what happened here in Texas a week ago.
1: Yes, exactly. Exactly. Each segment needs to do what it can. Let's figure out what we can do to get there. I, I'm very concerned we're now going to have a very hot summer. The atmosphere is changing. We're getting these polar vortexes, as they call them. I think it's Interesting. You know, a week later after the event, we were at 83 degrees here. I mean, amazing to me, we're having these radical changes where we're gonna have now a very hot summer after a cold winter. We need to start thinking on those aspects too. What's nice is the renewables may be able to get there, but my biggest concern there is, and I still haven't been able to identify this, were there any transmission constraints that prevented us getting generation to the the customers? Uh, We're still trying to figure that out.
2: If a rate hike of three or four cents ends up happening, our bills are 5 $10 more. It's not what you want to hear, but if it means that I'm not going to have to freeze my ass off for four days straight, I mean, isn't it worth it at the end of the day?
1: We've had relatively low prices. We've had a fairly secure grid over the years also. Uh, I think the reliability has been good for most people. I mean, how often do we talk about these events? Not very often. Yeah, I'm willing to pay a little bit more, but again, there's going to be a cost. There's a, a majority of our bills are energy, not necessarily wires. That, that's what we've got to think about. So it looks like energy cost is going to go up a little bit, and then the infrastructure costs is going to go up a little bit. How far is successful or not? That's going to impact people too. We, we've got to look at this and our leaders, and I'm really calling on our leaders, the Senate, the House, the PUC, the governor, they really need to be a champion for this change. They need to keep going with it. Let's come up with a checklist of what we can do, what's good, what's not. And, and we got to continue pushing this because, and we need to do it fairly quickly. We need to not slow it down. There's going to be a lot of people put, putting their two cents in from their own segments. We need to look this as a holistic approach on both sides, generation, transmission, load, water, communications, everything needs to be looked together. We should not piecemeal this thing. It's gotta be a holistic look, transmission, distribution, generation, distributed resources, all of those together. It's difficult, I must admit, but if we don't do it, we aren't gonna get there. The grid is changing, the weather's changing. We need to change our planning goal a lot further than we have.
2: Thank you once again to Evan Karan and Ken Donahue for their participation in Part 2 of the ERCOT series, as well as everybody that's helped make this thing possible so far. We've learned a lot through this, and of course we're very excited about Part 3 and the finale of it coming up next week when we welcome to the program Ed Hurz, longtime U of H lecturer, longtime historian of ERCOT and all things ERCOT. He's been all over the place. You've seen him on CNN, KHOU, Forbes magazine, you name it. He's been there talking all things ERCOT, and so we're very, very excited to have him on and close this thing out with. Him And then, of course, we'll round it out with me and Mr. Neemer. Listen, we've talked to five different folks, and we've gotten a lot of feedback on this series so far. We hope you've enjoyed it, and we'll certainly share our thoughts with you as well. Check out the website, eRenew.net. That's eRenew.net. And, of course, we'd be remiss if we didn't ask you to go check out the podcast apple itunes google play or spotify wherever you get your podcast at give us a listen go ahead and subscribe to it and if you listen to us on apple itunes please make sure you give us a five-star rating why because we promise that you'll learn more about renewable energy and ERCOT than you did before you drop by it's the green insider podcast powered by e-renewable we make going green easier